Welcome to episode 23 of the What's Up podcast, recorded on the 22nd of March 2018. I'm Martin. I'm Ali. I'm William. Today we're going to talk about a few different things, a slight change of, of pace from our normal talks. We're going to be talking about mermaids, harpoons, and whirlpools. So, so that in your pipe and smoke. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as far as tenuous links go, this is a spectacularly bad tenuous link. I think we can make it work. This is yeah. fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> well, we'll start off with the first one then, and mermaids. William, tell us about mermaids. The little mermaid, in fact. Please stop, Ali, bring it down copyright if you keep going. Please don't sue Disney. <laughs> so, Ariel is the thing we're talking about. Uh, so Ariel was very excitingly was selected as Issa's next sort of medium-class mission um, two days ago. Um, and yay, because this is something which uh, the UK is very heavily involved in, in fact is leading, um, but it's all of Europe, um, lots of different partners, um, but we are excited because, well, we did some work here, which is nice. Um, but and just to be clear, when you talk about Ariel, this isn't a little mermaid we're talking about here, we're not launching that into space. No. Um, so Ariel, crikey, it's an acronym, and I should probably know what it is, um, something about atmospheric, something. It looks at the atmospheres of exoplanets. So there you go, there's an E and an A, and I don't know where the other letters come from. Um, so the idea is that you have a nice planet going around another star, um, and periodically this planet will pass in front of the other star, and as it does so, you'll be able to see the starlight coming from that star changed by a tiny, tiny, tiny amount, um, because some of the light from the star is absorbed by the atmosphere of the planet. And that's fantastic because even though it's a tiny change, you can learn something about the atmosphere um, by looking at that change um, and work out what's in the atmosphere. And, and obviously that's interesting from a, a purely scientific point of view because you might be able to say something interesting about what sort of what planets are made up of. Um, but also when you know the, the real sci- sci-fi part of it is that you can start doing interesting things of looking for planets which have got ozone or carbon dioxide or water vapor or all the things we, sh- we have in our atmosphere. Um, so if there's somebody sitting on a planet many miles away um, looking back at the Earth um, or looking at the sun more to the point and when the Earth trundles in front of the sun in between, well in between them and us uh, you get, um, they, they would see all these constituent gases in our atmosphere and they'd go, oh look there's life. So that's the sort of thing we're trying to do in the long run. But Ariel's not looking for life, it's just trying to study planets. Um, so this is like a medium class mission, is that right? Yeah. So- Okay, and it's just dedicated exoplanet chaser, so sniffing atmospheres kind of thing. Exactly. So it will just sit and look at lots of different exoplanets. Actually, mainly it's not going to look at things to do with Earth at all. Um, it's going to look at more larger planets. Um, so the, the, the whole idea is here that this thing has just been accepted by ESA, ESA um, as their next mission. ESA is the European Space Agency? Yes. This is kind of... I love that you have to do that. What it's, would be NASA? You, yeah. Well, would be NASA, Europe. yeah. <laughs> it should be the same. Everyone should know it, but yeah. they don't, I know. Yeah. Um, this is all the European, is it European Union countries or a European conglomerate? The latter, yes. Um, so it's not connected with the EU at all, which sitting in the UK right now is good news. <laughs> I've been told to move on. Um, <laughs> so um, they will have, um, well, they've got small, medium and large missions um, and there's a call for a medium mission every few years, um, and it's very competitive. Lots of different um, parties will um, bid. Uh, it gets narrowed down to a fewer sort of small group. Um, in this case, it was three different missions all competing, and they do a very detailed study, and they say, we want to do this. this is the science we can do. This is the technology needed. Um, and then there's a bit of a fight over who gets chosen, and Ariel has been chosen. 
Um, so it will get launched in the late 2020s. So we're, you know, we're still a long way from doing this, um, but um, it's just tremendously exciting. That I mean, I, I, I think it's a really interesting next question in exoplanet um, research. It makes I, a lot of sense. I was trying to come up with an analogy for what Ariel does, and I think it, it has to be Scottish. So it was going to be, you're trying to work out what a midge's wings are made of when it's passing in front of the full beam of a car headlight. Very nice. That, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I yeah. think that's about right. Yeah, so so in you know twenty, uh, not easy. Some, no, thirty <laughs> years ago, we suddenly started being able to see the midges themselves and go, "Oh, look, there's, there's a midge flying from that headlight." We're now trying to learn something about its composition, which is it's cool. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's joining the dot stuff. This because you need to know how these bigger, closer in planets, what they're made of, how the elements mm -hmm. have moved around. Mm -hmm. Do they have the things that they need for life? Is there even a possibility you can see signs of life itself? But that's that's really hard yeah. to even define yeah. what that might be because there's so many different things you need to have happening all at the same time. But um, it's nice that there's going to be a dedicated mission. Yeah. But this is going up quite late. Is it, what was the year when we did actually launch? Because this has only just been greenlit. So yeah, twenty twenty seven. I think something like that. I'm not quite sure. Off the top of my head. A wee bit away. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is definitely um, late twenty twenties. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of work to do before then. Yeah, and. It's it's a really sort of neat concept in some ways. It's a relatively small telescope. It's only one metre in diameter, which, you know, compared to something like Hubble, two and a half. Um, JWST, eight. Yeah, mm -hmm. so, it, so it's quite... Um, a bit small. Five. Well, the, like technical correctness. Well, um, the, the web telescope's right. kind of a multi-tool. So yeah. this, yeah. is, this is like a dedicated planet sniffer. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, That's all it's going to do. Whereas web will do some and maybe better, but mm -hmm. it's also not optimized for planet no. sniffing either because it has to do so many other things. I would put it in sort of satellite size. This is a fairly, okay, it's a medium class satellite, but the satellites you would normally think of for astronomy purposes are the big satellites, Hubble, JWST. This is a medium sized Athletes, a lot of smaller people might imagine. Yeah. So um, we can only hope that they will start naming exoplanets after the characters from the film. Uh, that would be know, very nice. This, I don't think Sebastian yeah. B is over here. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll get lucky. I don't know. Yeah. So this is, this is being led by um, UCL uh, down in London. Um, so um, they are they are the sort of lead group. Um, but there's going to be a lot of involvement from SDFC, so it's the Science Technology Facilities Council, um, is who we work for. Um, so they've got a lot of expertise in designing satellites. I mean, to say the, there's a lot of different countries involved in this, yeah. um, but it's uh, it's yeah, just generally I think it's, it's got to you know it's going to be it's exciting technology. Um, it's pushing some detector challenges to go slightly quite long wavelengths. You're looking at um, I don't know if that's interesting to people, but I, I think it's pretty damn exciting. Um, if memory serves, this is quite close to your your heart, actually, isn't it? I did a tiny amount of work on it on its predecessor. Um, Ariel is a the, the the daughter of Echo, so say these 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 events come around every few years um, where things are uh, these calls. Um, this is the M four call, so medium mission four. M three was um, was Plato. Uh, was chosen, or you said we got to call it something else. Somebody told me it should be called Plato. I reckon they're winding you up because it has it's something to do with planets and not the chap Plato. Really? Um, uh, stay tuned while we argue about that. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> that's okay. That's going up before Ariel. Um, that was chosen in the last round. There was Echo was, was effectively like Ariel, it was competing um, against Plato, Plato, um, and lost. Um, and I was involved in that a little bit, tiny bit, though, tiny, but still, it's very exciting to be loosely connected with one of these things. Um, You're more connected than any of the rest of us at the table are. 
Yay. <laughs> but this, this is a sign that astronomy is working because, you know, you have to compete with all these great ideas and there's not enough money to build every single telescope people want. Mm -hmm. So you take the idea, it doesn't quite make it, you improve the idea, you come back and now it's absolutely accepted. So it's quite nice to, and I think, to see it come back. Yeah, it's also interesting to see how it fits into the broader research um, sort of landscape, I suppose. That sounds like a really trite phrase, doesn't it? But um, the, You have worked on these proposals for yes, a while now. Um, the thing is, ECHO was trying to target a handful of interesting objects. Um, so to try and say, right, we're going to go and look at I think like 55 country and sort of a hand, you know, like this object, this object, this object. Um, and one of the criticisms of it, and one of the reasons it wasn't selected was because JWST will do some of this science um, and other, you know, some ground-based observatories could do some potentially. Um, so some people were sort of saying, well, hang on, you know, you, you said you need to do all these sort of interesting objects. Other people will do them instead. Um, whereas they revised things. We said, right, well, with aerial, we were kind of a bit more like, well, actually, what, what is the more interesting thing you can do, which is say, right, we're going to look at a thousand objects and really target a particular sort of scientific question, which is sort of less cherry picking and more kind of um, saying, right, we want to understand more about a particular group of planets. Um, mm -hmm. So all these kind of hot Jupiter planets, try and learn something about their kind of, well, to some degree, you learn about their atmospheres, but you learn about their evolution. Um, and it's a little bit um, of a more standalone case. Um, I think it's quite, yeah, I think it's really interesting sort of, sort of lesson in how all these hugely expensive sort of headline missions are all kind of having to sort of jostle for position um, mm. to find their niche. Um, I'm waving my shoulders around to jostle. Um, <laughs> but um, it's, and it's worked because they've managed to prove that actually there's a justification for doing this. So, yay. Very cool. Um, I'll start coming up with Little Mermaid references. Okay, yeah. Uh, we'll suggest them. We'll slip them to the UCL group and say, right, how about naming naming this planet after? I may have to attempt the Jamaican accent. I'm not going to do I'm <laughs> not going to do that today. <laughs> we'll move away quickly from that before Ali starts. Probably for the best. Voices. Um, He's already sung. So. I used to work for the Disney company. So, you know, technically I've got an in here. You know, I could maybe ring them back up and say, help us out. <laughs> It was only the Disney store, to be fair. I don't think they'd pick up the phone to me. You never know. <laughs> okay, so from that, we're going to move on to harpoons. And this is a story that I'm going to take. Um, and this was a story that I read recently uh, about Airbus. He's one of the big sort of satellite um, manufacturers and do a lot of other stuff as well. I've been developing space harpoons. Now, the last space harpoon that I can think of was the one that was on the Rosetta mission and the Philae lander which tried to harpoon a comet during its landing process, but sadly failed to do so. The harpoon didn't fire properly. Oh. This is a slightly larger harpoon. This is actually a fairly sizable harpoon, um, and the idea of it is that there's lots of space junk out there, and particularly the big bits of space junk, defunct satellites that are trundling around in bad orbits and are not under control anymore, are a big risk to other satellites, to the International Space Station, to manned flight missions. There's lots of hazards here. So you want to deorbit these things, and Airbus's suggestion is to launch another satellite, which will get close to the out-of-control one, fire its harpoon, pierce through part of the satellite, hook it, and then drag it back down to Earth with it, burning up in the atmosphere as it goes. This is I, a single-use thing. I believe so, yeah. I'm not sure if it can maybe do two or three, but yeah, orbit dynamics are pain, so I assume you do one at a time. There's a wee piece of me that's like, yes, and the other piece of me is like, harpoons? <laughs> like... Does the piercing throw off its own set of bits? Or can you catch the... 
how does it work? So I assume it's, you know, like you've got a, a satellite which has a harpoon gun on the side of it. You get close, you fire your harpoon. And this is a chunky sized piece of metal with a sharp point on the end that pierces through stuff. And then when it pierces through, it deploys like a, a wing almost inside the satellite and latches on and then drags it back in to deorbit it. So it shouldn't generate anything else. But there's a whole, whole set of questions here. Yeah. I was chatting to a colleague who saw a presentation about this at a recent uh, satellite conference this week, last week. And he was sitting there watching them thinking, this is fine, but, you know, if you hit the wrong part of a satellite, even out of control satellites still have pressurized containers of fuel, of propellant. If you pierce through one of those, you've just popped a balloon. <laughs> it's like I'm going to whip around the room for a minute now. And it's, it just sounds like a horrific idea. And, you know, these satellites tend to be tumbling and rotating. And how do you find the right point to shoot through yeah. it? And how much do you know about the satellite? Because often the out of control ones are the ones that people don't want to talk about or don't want to admit to having. So there's just so many dangers here. I like the sound of the engineering challenge, though. Because, <laughs> like, you would, you would have the designs of the satellite. You would know where your red spots were. So you'd have oh. to map it and get a feel for its rotation rate or something and then decide. And uh, I bet the easy bit is actually hitting it in the spot mm. you want. I bet that's, you know, probably trivial. But the fact that it's in space then adds in a few extra things of, you know, how do you balance out the extra motion you get from shooting the harpoon in the first place and you're going to run out of fuel eventually, I'm guessing. And then, yeah, um, yeah I, oh, sounds kind of fun. But I mean, it's, it's a cool to idea. annoy lots of people. Oh, <laughs> for some reason, I've got robot wars in my head. I'm just kind of <laughs> picturing kind of, you know, these little things going around with pickaxes and stuff, but then grabbing how, the other ones. How else do you clean up space junk? Because, you know, I mean, this is good for big mm. things, but how do you do mm. the smaller... But yeah, it does sound like quite an intensive process, though, in that you, yeah. you launch one satellite to go and get I mean, one, maybe two satellites. That's my understanding, understanding, but you may, maybe that's, you could put multiple harpins on one and cook several and things, but them, yeah. orbital dynamics are hard. You, moving between orbits is very difficult, so... It, it, well, me, it wasn't in, in gravity. Yeah. Really easy. Well, yeah. Just yeah. use fire extinguisher. Simple. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it worked you know, in Wally as well. Exactly. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> Apparently, the physics in Wally was pretty good for that scene. Some of the rest of it, awful. But <laughs> <laughs> we've diverged. We have diverged. But why harpoon? Why not a, like a net? I mean, yeah, you know, you if you, you, could, you could shoot a net slowly, grabs it, wheel it in gently. I think it's that slowly part. You, you mean everything's moving everything. relative, so you, yeah. really, you like you have oh, you know okay. a split second to catch it on its, its way uh, past. Because they were showing, so I mean, they showed videos of this harpoon in test firings in labs, and to you know punch through a steel plate, you are moving at fifteen meters a second or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, it's a pretty, it's a it's a big chunky um, harpoon going pretty fast oh. to punch through stuff. So this is a quick grab and pull down mechanism. How does this work in in terms of um, okay? Sounds nice to go and grab a, a, a naughty derelict uh, spacecraft, but what if you want to go and take down somebody else's? It sounds a little bit space warsy, kind of. Yes. To the grey area. Who's funding this research? I don't know that. I know it's Airbus that I think are involved. Well, they're the ones developing it, certainly. And I imagine, I mean, they're a satellite operator. There is lots of money to be made in it. I mean, the, the UK infrared telescope in Hawaii was sold off a couple of years ago, and one of the big partners that bought into that was Lockheed Martin. And one of the things they're doing with that is tracking satellite debris and space debris generally because there's a lot of money and value in that. Mm. This, I, is a, this is a whole new industry. But it, it's such an important resource for everybody, though. I don't think you'd get the... I don't think you'd find 
enough animosity, I think because everybody realizes you've got to keep space clean enough or mm. it becomes unusable. So if you let the space chunk get too bad, then there, there's going to be problems. China did that silly thing of blowing up one of their own satellites with a missile just to show that they could. Yeah. Doubled this the, doubled the amount of space debris in one move and everybody went, China. <laughs> this is what we're going to be saying in a, in a few moments. It's like, oh yeah, Airbus did that silly thing where they managed to blow up a satellite by not quite firing their harpoon in the right well, place. Well, that's the scary well, thing because you've got to test something and things always go wrong and every so often you get a very rare event where two collide and, and increase the amount of debris anyway. So I guess anything you can do to help the problem. So if there's... Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, Harpoon sounds extreme though. I'd be harpoons. I hope they come up with some cool acronyms for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to try. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sticking with the, the space technologies um, stories, Ali, you were saying there was something you came across in the news recently that was interesting? Yeah, I, I found out that just last week, um, a Royal Assent has been given to the Space Industry Act 2018. And I, I went to the government website and I clicked on it and it was a bit dry. So I went swiftly away from it again. But this is, a, it's, it's interesting because it's the beginning of seeing the UK launch satellites from the UK, which is kind of fun. So it's the, the sort of the first step on the road to having our own spaceports and doing our own space launches. And you can have space planes, you can have rocket launches, you can have a bit of both. Uh, you could be launching CubeSats, which we're already uh, contributing a huge amount to. Um, I found out that we're responsible for 6.5% of the space sector in the, in, on the globe. And that's not bad for a little tiny island such as ourselves. And they're trying to kick that up to 10%. So this is part of that vision because we don't have our own uh, launch capabilities at the moment. And... Um, there are reasons why it would be useful to have a spaceport here uh, because we're actually quite a high latitude and uh, it's ideal for launching to the north. So most launches you sort of, you would imagine Cape Canaveral or the, the, the one in French Guiana that um, Isa are fond of using, you tend to launch near the equator and you launch east because the earth is rotating in that direction. So you get a wee bit of a kick to your rocket. So you save a bit of fuel. Uh, and that's really good if you want to get up to geostationary, if you want to go and visit planets and the like and the moon. Um, but if you want to do earth observation missions, polar orbits are really useful. And then you don't really want to launch from the equator. You want to launch um, from a higher latitude. It makes it a little bit easier to get into the inclinations that you care about. Um, so it's going to be fun because there's a few different places in the UK you could put them. And I don't know if you would uh, care to hazard a guess where some of the ideas for these baseboards are so far. There's Edinburgh, one, no. Uh, there's one not too far from Edinburgh. I think RAF Lukers was potentially on the list at one point. So mm. RAF bases are better for space planes because they already have space for runways and things. Um, and I think Shetland is now in the mix, potentially. There's a... Um, uh, an island to the north of Shetland, which is very handy, and it's also one of the most northerly points. So there's nothing for your rocket to fall onto yeah, if it's not going to work. That's quite a big point. Because like, what's what part of the reason you go from Cape Canaveral or somewhere? Is, as you say, you want to go east to get a kick. We mm. can go east from anywhere, but the beauty of using the east coast of America is that you end up over the ocean, and it doesn't matter where you land. The only thing down there is a few space barges waiting patiently. Um, <laughs> space hatch catching nets as well. Yeah. yeah. So there, there was a place in Wales, and there's also a place in Cornwall. Um, and directly north, north. Directly okay, north from yeah. Wales, you're kind of going to hit Glasgow. Yeah. But you would, if you were going to launch from there, you would have to do a little clever jink in your rocket, which means you lose a little bit of fuel. So it's maybe not the optimal place to launch from because you would have to sort of aim left. And then while you're still accelerating, aim to the right, but only after you've cleared. So they, um, they the, would the still always do. try and go over water then? 
I think the idea is you would never have anything, definitely nothing populated under your rocket track ever. Yeah. Um, And you you would juggle your orbital parameters accordingly. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if it meant you couldn't reach certain inclinations, then it becomes less likely. But then we might see more than one. I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't have more than one spaceport. Space tourism doesn't necessarily want to be completely remote. So Glasgow Presswick was Mm -hmm. um, one of the more favorable ones, I think, just in terms of infrastructure and getting close. Some of these West Coast launch sites I also remember reading were for space planes or launches from the bottom of planes. So you'd actually fly west first over the ocean and then point north and launch a rocket from underneath a plane yeah. where you're sort of over ocean. But it's quick to go west to get out over the ocean. Open ocean, then get back in again. So you're not, yeah. it's not a long flight. I think the kid in me just wants the rockets. I mean, horizontal launches are cool, but we'll never get to see them from from the ground. So I'm kind of like, you know, the plane will disappear over the horizon and then launch. You're like, no, I want to see rockets go. Um, But it it made me sort of smile because the the, the space tourism thing is going to be part of this. And so if Virgin Galactic or um, um, anyone actually manages to capitalize on this and make it a viable thing, I would definitely be queuing up if I had some spare millions to uh, to spend on such things. But the you can get strange types of orbits. I, I was reading up today on sun synchronous ones, and I used to know what they were and had forgotten and reread it and realized I still don't really understand what they are. But they're they're fantastic because they're still polar orbits, but you your orbit twists in such a way so it sort of processes like a spinning top uh, so that it always keeps the sun in the same relative direction so you could essentially ride the sunset on planet earth so you're just constantly following the terminator over the course of a whole year and you're just going round and round round that line the dividing line between sunrise and shadow so the views on our orbit like that would be absolutely stunning so i'm i'm all for riding the terminator and trying to come up with some slogans for I think I think it's a wee bit away from suborbital flight at the moment. You know, you'll get fifteen minutes and then you'll be in the drink. Then go visit Iceland for a bit. <laughs> you get a good view as the space harpoon is coming firing towards you. <laughs> Time's up, coming down. It's like, um, well, I mean, we should maybe start referring to space tourists as space junk. Uh, you know, oh, as mm-hmm. it, you know, sooner up, <laughs> sooner down would be better. Uh, but luckily, when you're going to low Earth orbit, you naturally decay. So that, you know, when it comes to space junk, it's it's irresponsible people's leaving communication satellites and forgetting to park them somewhere sensible and things that have broken that we need to get rid of rather yeah. rather less than the tourists that are having fun in low Earth orbit. Same with CubeSats. They tend to not leave low Earth orbit, so they'll be gone within six months or a year, depending on how much of the Earth's atmosphere you bump into. Yeah. Self-cleaning. So the last story that I had on my list here was whirlpools. Yeah. Really, really tenuous. Yeah, this one's definitely pushing it. It's not even a whirlpool. It's water related. So I have recently (laughs) returned from uh, Munich. um, And in Munich, um, where the European Southern Observatory has its headquarters, they are currently building a very shiny, new, impressive um, visitor center. Um, And uh, I spoke to Tanya Johnson, who was uh, formerly based at the observatory. Close personal Uh, friend. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> um, and uh, she was uh, she's in charge of said building, um, and uh, the building is sort of doesn't you could argue it looks like a whirlpool, possibly. Yeah. It's got some spiral. Okay, it doesn't look like a whirlpool really. It's got some spirals in it. That was my link. It is very tiny. Yeah, but we'll hand over to William's interview with Tanya, which also highlights the dangers of pre-recording interviews because the first line William will say in this is Martin has just introduced supernova center, but just change the word Martin for William, and this makes perfect sense. I'm here with Tanya Johnson in Garshing, having just had a wander around the truly marvellous 
ESO supernova center. Um, you just heard Martin sort of, sort of waffle about what he'd say the building is. Uh, Tanya, in your words, how would you describe what this place is and what it's for? Um, I would describe it as an amazing architectural building for a start. I'd agree, it's yes. It's really stunning. Um, it's a really interesting shape. It's all designed around the concept of a, of a binary star system about to go supernova. So it's two stars in close uh, proximity. And one star of the centre is the planetarium. And the other star is a sort of large temporary exhibition space. Um, and then there's, there's a permanent exhibition that goes round on ramps around it. So I think I would describe it as a, an amazing opportunity to engage the public locally and hopefully also internationally with what ESO does, but not only ESO, but other institutes as well. So all of our partners that work with us as well. Cool, because I mean, it's a really big space. Um, and how many people do you, do you think you can, you're going to get through the doors? Good question. Um, honestly, like the honest answer is we don't actually know. Okay. Because, because there's nothing, I mean, we're, we're just doing guesswork. I mean, we're doing, you know, sort of sensible guessing. Yes. Um, but there's nothing in, in the Garching area currently, there's nothing quite like the Isla Supernova. It's, well, I mean, arguably, there's not many places like it, actually. Well, there's not many places like it in it's the world. Amazing. That's, it that's amazing. for sure. Um, but, but in Garking, there's not really, there's no other sort of attractions like that. You know, if you no. take away the science and things, there's not actually any visitor attractions really in the area. Um, and so we have no idea if people will make the trip out to Garking. We're pretty certain from yeah. the number of reservations I've got so far. Um, Should probably just like so because this is at Garking, which is just a little bit north of Munich. Yeah, it's about um, fifteen kilometers north of Munich. Yeah, which is where this sort of this big science centre is with the two university and, and MPE yeah, and yeah, it's exactly. a huge science campus that employs thousands of people, um, and uh, has not only astronomy on the campus but all sorts of other like quantum physics and. Um, but it's, but it's not somewhere people are passing through unless they're no, coming to do some science. No, not yeah. necessarily. Yeah. But having said that, the transport is good from the centre of Munich. Yeah. You know, it's a direct train, it's 20 minutes, so it's, yeah. not, it's not difficult to get to, but we, we don't know. I, I'm optimistic and I think that we will have no trouble getting visitors out. Um, we sort of, you know, when we've done the planning, we've been thinking it could be anywhere between 50,000 to 100,000 a year. Okay. Quite big um, numbers. Yeah. It is, yeah, big numbers, yeah, yeah, and it really, I, I really think it could be. I mean, certainly the lower end of that, I, I don't have any concerns that will reach that number. I think it'll be quite no. easy. I mean, it's it's a, it's a brilliant space. It's going to be a heck of a draw. I mean, I can't, I, I want to come back and see it when it's completely finished because mm -hmm. I'm just wondering now. It, there's there's quite a few bits. Uh, how do I put this? Game? There's a few bits still to do before before yes. things open. Yes. Um, and what are you sort of? Dare I ask you, what are you most nervous about in the next few weeks? Um, I'm actually, weirdly, I don't, I don't know, maybe it's just insanity has already kicked in, but weirdly, I'm not actually massively nervous. Even when I see the exhibition in the state it's in now, yeah. I'm not massively nervous because, I mean, obviously there's things that look unfinished, but I know certain things that look unfinished now are going to be definitely done. And the thing is, even before there was the furniture in, once when there was pictures on the walls and things, even then it was stunning and yeah. people would be impressed. I mean, people go to art galleries to look at pictures. 
we could have left that exhibition yes. just with the astronomical images. Strong meters well it's on really beautiful. images, doesn't it? Yes. Um, so I'm not, I'm not hugely nervous because I think there'll be enough, even, even at the worst case, if there's a couple of things that are not quite finished. I don't think it's a big disaster because we've got 2,200 square meters of exhibition space. Yeah. The ramps go on like 250 meters long, you know. It's, it's a big space. So if there's one or two things that, you know, are still in final sort of production stages, I don't think it's going to be a big problem because the rest of it is just so impressive that, yeah. Okay, so, so asking a nicer question, what are you most excited about then? Um, getting people in. Um, it's, yeah, okay, makes sense. Yeah, actually getting people in and not just getting the visitors in, but also getting, you know, like easel people involved with, you know, the engaging the public. Um, that's that's really exciting to serve. I mean, we're starting already with some test groups, so it's it's nice to start to get people engaged on both sides, if you like. Yeah. Um. So that excites me. Um. And I am kind of like, yeah, I'm ready for it to be open. <laughs> I'm sure. It's years of planning actually come to fruition. Because yeah. as we were wandering around, you we went to see the planetarium, which I thought was that is a brilliant planetarium. For example, hundred plus seater. It's, the latest projectors, etc. Brilliant. But but you sort of suggested that whilst it's great, there's other bits you're more interested about in terms of the programme. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the, I, I love going into planetariums, always do, even if I fall asleep. Um <laughs> they're just they are, they're very Cozy, comfortable yes. and they're yeah. dark. So you know I don't fall asleep when I'm presenting. Um but uh, but yeah I, I do, I find them beautiful, and I mean, we do have a lot of really beautiful footage of Chile, where the, where the telescopes yes. are, so I mean, that's fantastic, and I look forward to using the planetarium to sort of bring the visitors to Chile. Um, but from my side, it's it's like, the planetarium is exciting, but it doesn't excite me more than the education workshops that we've developed, so sort of hands-on workshops uh, for school children, or in general, the exhibition with the interactive exhibits and the potential for doing special events, that sort of thing. So for me, it's the centre really is the whole centre. You know, the planetarium, yeah, people can be quite focused on the planetarium, but for me, it's it's so much more than just a planetarium. And I don't mean that just a planetarium, which, well, you know, there is, there's so much more to the centre. Yeah, I mean, it's just, actually, it's a small fraction of what you will see. When yeah, you exactly, yes. yeah. But though yeah. equally, it's potentially... It's the headline draw. It's people. no, I mean, I, I can't imagine a group or a person coming to the centre without seeing a planetarium show. Yes, I don't That's imagine that right. happening really. So you, you mentioned the special events. So mm. um, I suppose I probably should ask. You know, do, do you want three kind of rather over enthusiastic astronomers from Edinburgh to come? Definitely. Yes, yes definitely. Good, good, good. I'd love for you to come and give a talk. Can't pay you. Oh, but... okay. <laughs> <laughs> Any language worries? Um, lots of plans. No, I mean, so Garching itself, the 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 city, if you can call it a city, it is a city, but it's a very small city. Um, the city of Garching apparently is approximately thirty percent non-German. Right. So international, um, and on the campus, you know, we've got thousands of people. I think oh, I, I don't know how many people are employed actually on the campus, but it's, I think somebody said ten thousand recently, but um, and and not just in the universities, but there's other companies, and so that's a very international audience. So for the moment, the first sort of quarter that we're open, we're doing approximately twenty five percent of what we offer is in English. Right. 
Okay. Um, I mean, everything that we have is available in either English or German. So all the school workshops, all of the, the tours, these things, um, you can book them in either English or German. But then also in the planetarium, we've got one show a day approximately that is in English. And then the special events on the Friday evening that we do. So that will be where public talks come in. One of those a month, that's what I mean, and four will be in English. It may be that we change after the yeah, first quarter as we we'll see. Yes. Yeah, exactly. We might find that actually we need to do more English events. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so once a month there will be an English talk. So so there is scope. There is definitely Mars. scope, yes. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for the thank tour you. and also for sitting down and chatting about it. It sounds, well, it is brilliantly exciting. Can't wait to, say, can't wait to come and see it when it's finished. Good luck. Thank you, I need it. It's going to be brilliant. <laughs> Cheers, Anya. Thank you. So let me get this straight. Uh, the place sounds awesome, but you've already been twice. You have you have seen Tanya at least twice, haven't you? Because you tried to record her the first time and all you got was drills in the background from the construction yeah, it was very site. much construction site <laughs> the first time we tried. So how have you managed to get there twice and we haven't been at all? Is that is that because you were over there for extracurricular activities or were you doing work? Well, no, they were, they were curricular activities. Yes, <laughs> I was there for other meetings. Uh, for, for other projects so you had a, val- a valid excuse and I might get in Honestly. trouble for going but I think we should arrange a field trip yeah definitely and give a comedy talk uh, maybe, in, in, maybe using our fishy connection that we just came up with today with maybe a little bit of German thrown in good measure oh my god don't get me started on those accents I'm not very good at them <laughs> so the, my only point, I mean it's, it is it's looking pretty awesome it does I have the, to the say. images and videos I've seen yeah, as well it, as the virtual it, reality tour is spectacular yeah it's, it's not it is quite a lot to do. I, I'd, I'd love to see what it looks like now. We're only, well, I think it's just thirty-six days on the. Uh, yeah, twenty-eighth of April, twenty eighteen, is the official opening. So it's yeah, it's coming soon. It's soon. Um, oh, I imagine it's all hands on deck. We should be wishing Tanya all the best for that. Then, um, well, hopefully there'll be some nice press releases and images and stuff oh, that sure. we can. Yeah, yeah so we can maybe talk about it in the next one a bit as well. Yeah, yeah no, I think so. Um, and I think yeah, no, my my only slight gripe is the fact that. It's called the Supernova Center, and, and Tanya was saying this because it's sort of model on two stars about to go supernova. And strictly speaking, I think it's about two binary, well, a binary system where two stars are about to merge. So really, it should be called the, the Binary Merger Center. Um, Let's be honest here, though. Bi- binary Merger Center doesn't quite have the same ring to it as Supernova Center. No, it doesn't. But I, I want to point that out uh, primarily as a test to see whether Tanya actually does listen to this podcast. So Tanya Johnson, if you're currently listening to me criticizing the naming of your, quote, Binary Merger Center, Please let us know. <laughs> That's right, Tanya. You and anyone else listening to this podcast can, of course, reach us on Twitter through our old Ricky Astro handle, which is the name we've been using on both Facebook and uh, Twitter for our outreach work, um, as well as leaving comments on the uh, website where you get your podcast or through iTunes reviews, that kind of thing. So there's plenty of ways that you can let us know that you're listening, Tanya. And I think at that point, we'll wish you luck again for the grand opening. Aye. And thank you all for listening. Aye. Bye, all.